guys. I don't want you guys out.
Well, good afternoon and thank you on behalf of this amazing family. This is an amazing family. And a family like this doesn't just happen, it's actually a legacy. And um, I can see that. I can see that the, that the labors of this couple, this man of God and this woman of God have yielded fruit and it's generational now. And I just wanna say that I'm so grateful for the brief time that Southey, that the Sutherlands came to this church so that I could get to know them. And I'm telling you, you know, he would come to our men's prayer meeting and then the fellowships over here sitting around and talking. And I remember Brother Sam said, Pastor, you gotta meet this Southey Sutherland. He's a, he's a, he's a modern day Hudson Taylor, whatever it was, I don't remember, Brother Southey. But anyway, so I said, listen, I will, uh, I'll do that. And as soon as I did and we started talking, I was thankful and grateful for um, your service in the Lord and his service in the Lord. And so we're going to have a word of prayer, and then there's going to be a video. And so I'm going to go back there so I can see the video, and, and then another one later, and some songs and testimonies from a lot of folks. And I hope your heart is open for what God has for you, for all of us here. I can tell you that there's a luncheon in the gym afterwards, and everybody needs to stay for that because there's way too much food, all right? So, and take it home with you. But go over there and stay as long as you like. And that's what our church tries to do is host whatever families have come from out of town. And so, again, thank you for allowing me to be part of this. And um, your family is, it, it is an amazing family. And I'm, I'm just grateful to be a part of it. You know, um, I remember seeing Heather when she came back from some caregiving there. And the first time I saw her when she came back, now she sent me a couple of videos of, of you praying. I don't know if you knew that sneaky daughter of yours I have it on my phone and also <laughs> dad and I have listened to that I can't tell you how many times I mean this is a man who was um, on his deathbed and in his prayers praising God. every word with gratitude thanking God for the food the food hospital hospice food and I mean truly thankful and praising God for the blood of Christ and it was just um, it was convicting and encouraging and I'm keeping them I'm keeping them and I'm thanking God for him and for you and and so um, she would come home and she did she broke down and cried and I, I was reminded the scripture says we sorrow of course Jesus wept at a funeral no less but it says we sorrow but not as others who have no hope it's not the same it's not the same it's different miss him see him again and um it's an amazing thing to think that the scripture says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It's precious? Well, of course, because he's saying, come on home. It's precious to God from heaven's viewpoint. So sometimes we need that viewpoint. Let's go to our Lord in prayer together, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we come to you at this place where so many tears have been shed and so many joys have been shared. We come to you again at this altar, Lord, where decisions have been made and lives have been changed. And we thank you in this place and at this time for the memory of this dear servant of yours. And it is true that your people sorrow, but not as others who have no hope. We thank you for that hope, that assurance. We thank you for the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I pray, Father, you use this time to encourage your people, to strengthen them, Lord, and the ones who are here. You've said that you're nigh unto those that have a broken heart.
And I pray, Father, you'll be nigh unto them. And Lord, as we celebrate this man's faithfulness, we are reminded that he is faithful because you are faithful. We're reminded that he loved you, but only because you loved him first. And so we glorify you in all of it. And we commit it into your hands this great hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Snatch them out of the flame.
I met Sadie McLean in 1972, on the first Tuesday of the month of November. It was about 8 p.m. That meeting was so decisive that one can say that everything in my subsequent life was somewhere or another the mark of that day. No decision, I mean decision which shapes a life, has been made at least implicitly without preference to this founder meeting. It took place at Grenoble on campus. I was uh, nearly 25. I was an engineer and I was pursuing my academic courses to become a physicist. Now the reason why I was in this room was study was teaching scriptures is that I had received some day before a flyer which was an invitation to attend Bible studies on campus. In France, a lot of people have a Bible, but very few of them have ever opened it. Then I was interested at least for two reasons. The first one is due from the fact that I have heard that scripture had been an, in, an inexhaustible source of inspiration for French writers. And for example, Boaz Asleep, a poem by Victor Hugo, comes directly from the Book of Ruth. The second reason which brought me to that place came from the fact that even though I was practicing, a practicing Catholic, I thought, like most of the French, that the Bible was a compilation of all fables, in particular the book of Genesis and specifically its first chapters. When I entered the room where the conference was being held, I realized that I was surrounded by students about 20 years old in their first or second year of college. I was five years older and way beyond them as far as the academic persons. Then I immediately looked at them as nearly illiterate. In contrast, the man who was entering the study was a tall and handsome man in his uh, early 40s or late 40, uh, 30s, speaking of perfect French with only a light American accent. Very elegant. He was treating the chapter 7 of the book of Daniel, which I never heard about before. And then I became the one who was illiterate. One of the objects of the chapter seven is to present an extremely strong and devastating kingdom which will appear at the end of this age. Its description involves symbolic items such as homes, and there was a number of such homes and I was lost among all these homes. Furthermore, the teacher was going from the text at hand to the book of Revelation and to the Gospel of Matthew, using a quantity of other texts 
to comfort his desperation and describe the end of this time. The words came when I realized that the illiterates around me seemed to understand everything. When everybody left, I went to this man and told him, I understand that you want to talk about the future in order to attract people to your conferences. But would not be more useful to talk to them about the gospel? He looked at me and answered, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. When I think about this answer, I cannot help smiling since Sade is the most fascinated man by the gospel that I have ever known. He is literally in love with it. The truth was that he did not want to hurt me, the lost. And as said, the great apostle, Mike, wanted to have become all things to all men. By the way, everybody called him Mike because it's easier to say that study for French and because it sounded more American. Anyhow, I felt coming from him a kindness which was a new experience to me. Later on, I understood that it expressed the love of God for the lost and that love of God for the lost stayed deeply in him. Mike was a hunter. The scripture being his gun, the love of God, the kindness and compassion and mercy of God, his ammunition. Now, these studies took place every Tuesday at the same time. I came back, and I came back again, and again, but I was continuing, understanding very few of what was said. Then I decided to read by myself the Gospel according to Matthew at night. I thought that it would bring me some light. The result happened to be worse. I found it boring. After several weeks, I asked Mike to explain me the Bible, so to say. He immediately proposed to read with me the Book of Romans. In fact, he was just waiting for that. With him, I made an astonishing discovery, the thought of power, the depth of his thought. I was fascinated dazzled, and I started to realize that the fables which I heard about before were by no means fables. Indeed, in our holy God, love and justice have generated through the cross of Christ the salvation of men, provided they put all their faith in I could not imagine more splendid doctrine. And the teacher was an extraordinary one. Then came the chapter 5 of the epistle. In this chapter, a parallel between Adam and Christ is drawn 
through a contrast between their deeds. Death for Adam, life for Christ, according to as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one shall the many be made righteous. I was grasped by this truth. Since its consequence is that either Adam is a man, the father of the human, not a kind of humanoid standing by race, by any race, or the complete doctrine falls apart. The difficulty with that last position was that I have learned enough from the greatness of the doctrine of salvation that I could not trace that it was favor for each people, among whom I am now. I had been prepared by the previous chapter of this great epistle than I believed. I gave my life to Christ with the adult desire to become one of his servants. This is what I tried to be during the last 50 years. Sadie was essentially handsome. He was so externally and he was so internally. He was radiant. Radiant by Christ. It was difficult to take one size of his. I don't think having ever seen him hungry. He was always smiling. When I met him, he had gone through a terrible accident one year and another failure, but I never noticed it. I heard about it a long time after. He was just frightened. Sally was essentially intelligent. He was so by nature and he was aesthetically cultivated, but more he was spiritually perceptive. When came the time to teach me the scriptures, he knew immediately that Paul, with his strong logic and his, and his aesthetic, would be the one who would touch me. And this is what happened. In Christ, Sully saved me from the terrible spiritual death and led me on the way to eternal life. In Christ, Sully led me on the way to eternal life. There is no human to whom I owe more. And the physicist that I became can sing with the psalmist. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand, I understand more than the aged, because I have kept thy precepts. Amen. That was Jean-Jacques Niez, who's one of, ended up being one of France's leading physicists in nuclear power. It's precious. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Dad lived that out and just loved the unsaved, as Jean-Jacques said. It is those truths that allowed dad, while bedridden with dreadful disease, humbled to utter dependence on others for everything. I had the privilege of even flossing his teeth. 
Until the very end of his life, Dad adored and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was able to thank God for each new day, for God's creation, wonderful creation that Dad enjoyed, and for our wonderful Savior and sacrificial Lamb of God. He would thank God for the food, as Pastor Jim said, and he would honor all the cooks around him because as Ben Coulter can testify, he was a great eater. He ate like a teenager into his 80s. He would thank God and all the time and prior to, to, um, to losing that, that taste, um, he, um, he would just be grateful for all small things. Since the age of 18, Dad honored his Lord and Savior and, and devoted his life to sharing the word of God with students worldwide. He was an avid student of the word of God in the original language in which they were written, an eternal student. Like the psalmist, Dad meditated deeply on the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. He was a lifelong student, as I said. He was partially blind from the cancer medicine that had taken away his ability to read, and I would read him the Bible, and he would say, let's stop here for today. Or he would say, ooh, that was rich. Let's stop here because I need to meditate and I need to absorb what you just read. I must digest these truths, he would say. He was truly able to give to any man or woman an answer for the hope that was in him. With detachment from all worldly things this world has to offer, Dad set out to live his life in utter dependence upon the God who had saved him from his sins. At the end of his life, when bone cancer had taken over his whole body and excruciating pain from a UTI as well, he wanted his thoughts to be pure and aimed toward his beautiful Lord, the Lord of lords and king of kings. He therefore refused the morphine because it gave him hallucinations. Dad was an example in life and death. And while sometimes screaming from pain, he never complained. If I were to sum up Dad's life, he was a passionate intellectual defender of the word of God. He was bold because he loved the unsaved of this world and wanted to lead them to eternal salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in you should not perish but have everlasting life. For it is with the mouth that confession unto salvation is made and with the heart one believes that Christ rose again. God raised him from the dead and therein is our victory if we believe we are also passed from life to death. He was so strong and amazed the hospice nurses. He was truly humble, as one of the nurses from hospice commented, on wool sweaters that we had to cover him layer, layer and layer because he was just skin and bones and cold all the time. And he had holes in those wool wood sweaters because up in Virginia there's stink bugs that eat the wool. But he was just... Oh, the most knowledgeable person I ever met, and, and yet so humble and strong. 
his last unspoken words to us would be, trust in the Lord no matter what your circumstances and never complain. Be grateful in all things. Love and adore the Messiah of the world who gave his life that we may pass from death to life. Thank you. What a privilege to follow in his footsteps. Mine's a little bit more personal. I wrote this to my daddy while he was still alive um, because I knew his time on earth would be short. And I also called him every day because I am his little girl. Um, I thought my daddy was the tallest, wisest, and most handsomest man. I felt so protected and loved by him. Daily I witnessed my dad reading the Bible, not only in his quiet time, but also studying it and preaching it. I witnessed how God's word never failed in his life and in others around him. However, my favorite time, and it might be selfish of me, was when my daddy would read at my foot's on my bed, and it would help me fall asleep because I could dwell, my mind would dwell on things that were pure, lovely. He taught me to do everything in excellence, which is what the Lord requires us. My dad taught me the importance of living, and he lived an admirable life. Most importantly, he demonstrated a life full of righteousness, modeling God's eternal values. He was an amazing role model. I know how blessed I am to have such an earthly, such a loving earthly father. My dad was always caring for his families and the students he discipled, and he truly valued people and eternity above all. As he grew, as he grew older, he continued to share the gospel with boldness. I saw that his love for God and my mommy grew sweeter with the years. My favorite memories as a child are dancing on his feet, and he had big ones, <laughs> his laughter, the hikes in the Alps, camping under the stars, picking berries, and his, especially his morning and nighttime kisses. Even though we were poor, we managed to have the most amazing vacations with families that we would stay with in Spain, Norway, and throughout Europe where we could stay with other missionaries. I cherished those experiences and fun adventures. Dad had purchased an old Mercedes, but with a brand new motor. The car was actually falling apart. So Bob would sit on one end of the back door and I would sit on the other. We would, he would put a bungee cord over like the middle bar of somehow and we put both Jim and Andy in the middle. However, when it would rain, so we drove throughout Italy to, on our way to Greece, and when it would rain, it would be coming in the back window and underneath the car. <laughs> but it was the, so much fun to watch other people's reaction to us as we were driving down the road. During those times, we would sing praise and worship songs to our God and Creator and talk as a family. Dad had such a huge devotion to God, and he grew wiser because of it. May his legacy live from generation to generation to come. May God be glorified throughout his, through this death, and even though I miss him terribly, and I've cried a lot, I am so happy he is no longer suffering. He has his crown 
placed on him. He has finished the race. I love you, my daddy. You will, you will always be the best one. Once again, thank you so much for being here this afternoon. We're going to sing a song entitled, Take My Life and Let It Be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee. The words will be on the screen. They were written by a young lady by the name of Frances Havergal, and she was a lady in which Calvary captured her heart. Now, I didn't know Mr. Southey, but it sounds like Calvary captured his heart, and he gave his life to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing about that uh, this afternoon. The words will be on the screen for us to sing the first and last verse of Take My Life and Let It Be. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love, at the impulse of Thy love. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee, ever only all for thee. Good evening, and to everyone that's online, too. Uh, when I was thinking about what to say, um, I, was, I happened to be studying through the book of Daniel. As Jean-Jacques uh, said, his first message was from Daniel 7, so that, that was interesting, too. But um, um, I have some, some three, three th comparisons I'd like to make with uh, Daniel and, uh, and my dad um, from the first chapter. Uh, the world, when it values people, it looks at the physical, mental, and social aspects of their life. Is he good looking? Is he intelligent? Is he socially gifted? But God uses people who have a love and commitment for him and his truth, which produces a love for people's souls and a care for their eternal destiny. That faith is put in motion through the power of the Holy Spirit. My dad had that kind of genuine faith, and so did my mom. Commitment and love for Christ that he dedicated his whole life to save lost souls and build his church by making disciples who could reproduce other disciples. And dad was willing to go anywhere that God called him to go. The prophet was also such a man of faith, and I'm going to look at the, the three ways, like I said. This is from Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And this is in 597 B.C. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Because back then, if, you, if your God was stronger and you conquered and you took the vessels, um, you proved that your God was stronger than their God. But as we see later on in the book of Daniel, not so, because when they, when, they, when they mocked 
when they had a party and they, they took the vessels from, from, that they had stolen from the temple, um, the finger, God brought a finger that, uh, that said, your reign is finished tonight. Um, but uh, here we get to my first point. Um, then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They would take the, the young people from the conquered nation, the, the young gifted ones, the ones who were, um, again, this is man's value, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, um, and possessing knowledge and quick to understand, and um, who had the, the ability. Dad was good-looking, and, um, and so was mom, and uh, he had a high IQ. He was gifted um, from the world standpoint. But, um, and he had social intelligence. He went to Princeton. He was an undergrad in 1958. He met Christ there at the age of 18 when Dr. Fullerton came and knocked on his door and uh, led him to Christ. So he always had a passion for door-to-door ministry, even on the campus in, in Grenoble. I remember going with him uh, when I was 12, and um, there'd be students that would open the door, and they'd be in their underwear, and he would Give him the gospel. <laughs> he didn't care. Um, then he got his Master's of Divinity um, at, at Dallas Theological Seminary in 62. Uh, married that year also, and then um, uh, went, uh, went in ministry in 66, in a few years later. More about that later. But he knew seven languages. He was fluent in four, and he started learning Russian at the age of 58. So God really gifted him, but he was such a student, as um, the, my sisters have, said, have talked about as well. He was always uh, in the Bible, the first thing in the morning, but also, but also he, he read tons of other literature as well. Especially in science and history, he was very strong, and so he could answer a lot of, a lot of the... Um, uh, and he developed such a strength in apologetics that uh, he could confront uh, the, the, the lies of this world, like... Um, you know, atheism and evolution. He received two honorary doctorates, um, but not only was he good-looking um, and had, uh, had, was gifted on the outside, but the Spirit of God was in him. And like Daniel, he, he, uh, he, he stood out from the crowd. Um, Like Daniel, who prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem, he was in the Word uh, daily and in prayer daily. Um, and then he would open up the Word. He would do devotions. We weren't always excited about that, but, uh, but I do remember he did a one-on-one study with me when I was about 12 on the first uh, eight chapters of Romans, verse by verse, and it, um, it really opened my eyes um, to the Word of God and the, the depth and the, the you know, uh, the, the, how, how the gospel works its way out in the life of a believer. Then again, I had the privilege uh, when I um, was in between schools, um, I was at a difficult time, actually got kicked out of Air Force Academy uh, with an honorable discharge. Uh, I ended up transferring to Stanford, but uh, 
I had the privilege during that period of going and studying under, under my dad and other missionaries who had started a, a Bible school at, at, uh, in Grenoble for the, the new converts and for anybody that wanted to study the, guy, the, the Bible. Like my sister said, he was one of the smartest men I knew, and we'd have conversations at the table, um, and especially concerning um, scientific stuff, like, you know, um, there's only one book in the world that, uh, that presents a God who is, uh, who is infinite and also personal, because when we look out at the universe, we see that it's infinite. But we also see that there's, there's personhood, and that book is the Bible. And he had, we'd, we'd have tons of discussions like that. And he would, he, would love, he would love to discuss that and go deep in the science, too. We were truly blessed uh, with the Father. Um, you could come with any question, too. My second comparison is um, he was also committed and virtuous like Daniel. In verse 9 of that first chapter, it says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that we, he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. So when there is a clear command from God, you draw the line. That is the character of an uncompromising life. And my dad did just that. For two reasons, um, Daniel couldn't, couldn't enjoy the, the, the king's delicacies. Uh, the first one was because it wasn't kosher. Um, you know, they ate a lot of pork. Um, and um, the second reason, though, more importantly, was that it was dedicated to their false gods and their idols. And so Daniel um, would not defile himself. He would not be polluted by disobeying Scripture. And um, a lot of us, including myself, don't have that kind of commitment to the truth Expediency and practicality give us excuses to compromise, but not Daniel and not my God, not, not my dad, nor my God, but not my dad. This led him to a, 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 a lifelong devotion to saving souls. He cared about the souls of men, and he was such an evangelist. He would witness to people anywhere, and he would, he would draw them into the conversation. He got better. I mean, he would witness all my friends. I'd be embarrassed sometimes, you know, he's, he's talking to them, and sometimes I wouldn't be embarrassed. I'd pray for them, but um, um, he had such a zeal. He, he would strike up a conversation with a stranger and drop a nugget of truth. And uh, my third and final point is that he was fruitful like Daniel. Uh, he was a missionary and evangelist in foreign countries for all his adult life, over 50 years overseas. Um, I was born in 69, and um, in 66 rather, and my parents were on, on their way to New Guinea uh, in 66. My mom was pregnant with me um, in about the ninth month, and um, we took a, a boat over to, uh, we were going to Australia first. I was almost born in the Pacific Ocean. But um, um, my first two years, I see eight millimeter videos. I don't remember all this stuff, but uh, people with a stick, you know, the guys with sticks through their nose and the women with the, the breasts hanging down to their, um, their grass skirts holding me. And they call me Tim Booney, which means big white baby. And they would feed me with hands that had never been washed. <laughs> and apparently I had a, like an eight inch tapeworm in my diaper. Um, <laughs> um, so that's why I have a good immune system now. 
But uh, anyway, first two and a half years in New Guinea. Then when I was three, they moved to France. And uh, so I spent, uh, when I was three to 15, with them in France. Um, But they ended up staying from 69 to 94, 25 years. And I saw, during that period, when I was three to 15, I saw they were working with a local um, evangelical church. And I saw that church grow from a few families and meeting in this little apartment room to over 100 people. And, that, and, and a lot of that was a result of my dad's work on campus um, through what they called the FEU, which is the Foyer Evangelique Universitaire, which was a coffee bar for students where they had topics that they would discuss, which is where Jean-Jacques went. And uh, like they'd, they'd have topics like, you know, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? Um, but other harder questions to answer. Then mom and dad went to the Ukraine from 95 to 2017. So another 22 years of ministry there and a lot of fruit there. Uh, but I'm gonna close with a, with a final story. Uh, in 2018, we went back to France and they hadn't, they hadn't been there for 25 years. And uh, um, they were going to start, we were going to meet Jean-Jacques and his wife. He ended up marrying a, um, an American missionary and they have two daughters that are, that are on fire for the Lord too. And so dad leading um, Jean-Jacques to the Lord, you know, led his family. Jean-Jacques ministered to others in different churches because he was a leader in France as a, as a physicist and as a brilliant guy. It was hard to understand through his thick accent, but... Um, but he's a super smart guy. We were going to, he lived in Bordeaux, and we were going to look at uh, uh, universities in Bordeaux and Bayonne in the southwest part of France. And we went back to Grenoble for the first time. They went to church. When we went to church, they were like rock stars. Everybody wanted to talk to them, and everybody invited, nobody cared about me, uh, but everybody invited them into their home, uh, and, and it was like three times a day. Finally, and when you go into a French person's home, they give you some food, they, they give you some drink, you know, and so I was like, I got to go, you know, mountain biking and go work out. But it was such an honor um, to, to have a dad uh, and mom, but, um, but a dad that loved the Lord so much um, and had so much fruit um, that, um, and I, I, I saw it, you know, in, in all the people and all the families and the different churches that were started after that. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you. Yeah, I think we're all talking about my dad's legacy, and he definitely had a legacy in many parts of the world. Um, and it's just neat to hear all these stories. But I want to kind of bring it into like more personal, more like Dina did, and uh, talk about what it was like to be a son. And as a son, I looked to my father to teach me how to be a man. And I observed him as much as I listened to him. And I jotted down four lessons that were passed down from dad. One, protector. My father was a rock that others could depend on. And I remember following my dad outside, probably while after Bob and him did their devotions in Romans, but I would go out and practice self-defense and martial arts moves that he had learned. I don't know 
Well, I was probably only like five years old, and I'd just be kicking in the air and doing my karate chops. But I was a little boy imitating my father, and one day I thought to myself, I might be responsible for protecting others. The second one is courage. My father embodied the verse from his favorite book of the Bible, Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and to the Greek. My dad was fearless, like John the Baptist. He modeled the lack of fear of man. He would share the gospel and truth of God with all those he met, no matter the consequences. And I would actually pre-warn my friends before I brought them home. (laughs) I remember canvassing a university in France with him as a high school student and doing my best to overcome the fear and awkwardness of sharing biblical truths with complete strangers. He imparted to us the courage to be independent thinkers and not to default by going with the flow. Third lesson was peace. My father modeled dependence on God. I never saw him anxious. And based on the path he chose to pursue with his life, there was a lot to be anxious about, especially on the financial side. (laughs) But he knew he was God's child, and he trusted his father in heaven to provide. He acted actually like he was a trust fund kid. And that trust was contagious. Throughout my career in the Army, I was the one everyone knew would be calm and in control no matter what chaos we were experiencing, even earning the nickname Iceman by all the lieutenants in the battalion one time. And that's a trait I inherited from Dad's example. Fourth one is mercy. And I'll always remember the spanking I didn't get. And I'll remember it much more than the spankings I received. I had stolen five francs from my sister, Dina, to buy candy and a little toy soldier at the local Tabac, which is a little French store that was across the boulevard from our apartment. The five-franc coin was from a special shoe box she kept in her room, and it happened to be a silver franc piece, five-franc piece that she had collected, so more or less like a silver dollar. I was too young to know how they figured out the culprit, but suddenly I sensed that I was in big trouble. I went to hide under my bed to avoid facing the consequences. My dad came in the room. He he knew that I'd been there for quite some time, but for some reason he just sat on the bed above me and we talked as I cowered below, sick to my stomach, dreading the punishment I was about to receive. So instead of doing the regular countdown to get me out of my hiding place with added spankings for every count over the set deadline, he eventually got up and left. Because I had been conditioned for judgment, that mercy was powerful. It was a memorable demonstration of the mercy I would receive from my Heavenly Father and a mercy I could share with others during my life. So my dad passed on these four attributes to me. My role as protector, courage, peace, and extending mercy. And I'm grateful to him for it. And I hope to impart these attributes to my children as well. 
I also want to share one more anecdote that I will always cherish. When I left to the Middle East in early 2003 to plan and execute the invasion of Iraq, my dad sent me this blessing from one of the most well-known hymns of Christendom. It arrived in a letter shortly before we received the presidential order to invade. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And he made that blessing personal to me. And his blessing helped me reflect on God's faithfulness in the past, and it provided me with the confidence to trust him with the present and the future. And by God's grace, I did make it home later that year to my grace. (laughs) And Caleb and Isabel at the time. And I know that this same grace will one day reunite me with my two dads in heaven. We're going to sing that song, Amazing Grace, verse 1, 3, and 5. And then we've got a harmonica with us today, so looking forward to that. As we sing, Amazing Grace. for coming out. Thank you so much for your hospitality, Pastor Jim and Pastor Andy and all of you here. Your kindness has been amazing. My mom was heroic. She stayed faithful to my dad for 60 years. And in those last days, she was so sweet, she would give up, get up sometimes a dozen times during the night to care for him, to change his diaper. 
And Heather and I had the privilege of doing that too. Heather, you were so kind too. Heather and my mom were the reason dad didn't have to go into hospice. And, um, oh, sorry, boogers falling, so. But, um, oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you, uh, Bob and Andy, Heather and Dina, for what you shared, what a blessing. And uh, we were so blessed with such a wonderful earthly father who pointed us to our heavenly father. And uh, during the, the last days, I kept asking dad, dad, what would you, what would you like me to, to say at your memorial service, you know? Because it was actually by God's grace that he lasted that long. He was diagnosed with a stage four prostate cancer in November of, uh, of 2021. And the, the cancer had metastasized into all his bones. And Andy and I spent a couple nights in the hospital with him. And uh, we, we honestly at that point didn't think he had much longer to live. And the Lord granted him 14 more months. And so what a blessing that was. We got to visit him and say things to him and he to us. And uh, that was really precious. But he finally confessed to me that people in France would sometimes compare him to John the Baptist, because, uh, which makes sense, because John the Baptist was a bold preacher of God's word. So I want to share a few thoughts about John the Baptist and, and dad. You know, John's primary mi mission was to prepare the way for the Lord. And the first thing we see in Luke chapter 3, in the first couple of verses, verse 1 and 2, we see that God's word is rooted in historical truth. Like Jean-Jacques said, these aren't just fables. Many people believe the Bible, ah, it's just a good story, it's just fables. But no, this is historical truth. So Luke begins chapter 3 with a list of national and local leaders. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, this is probably around 29 AD, plus or minus a year, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod, this is Herod Antipas, being tetrarch of Galilee, and tetrarch is just a, a fancy word for he was governor of a fourth part of the country or province. And so you can see on this map, there were four different leaders. After Herod the Great, three of his sons and one other man were ruling in those tetrarchies. And then his brother Philip, that's Herod Philip II, was tetrarch of northern Transjordian territories, east of the Jordan River and largely north of the Yarmouk River, known as Iteria, Batanea, and Trachonitis. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Luke's precision in naming five Roman officials with their specific titles shows concern for detailed historical accuracy and historical records outside of the Bible confirm his accuracy. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So Annas and Caiaphas were two local Jewish religious leaders. And so we see here the word of God is rooted in historical tr truth. The time and place of these events are in the flow of world history. It's like as if someone were to say 2,000 years from now, in the third year of Joe Biden's pre presidency, while Ron DeSantis was governor of Florida and Jim Koretsky was mayor of Jupiter, Pastor Jim Blaylock preached the word of God at Beacon Baptist Church. So you, you probably couldn't 
nail it down to a week, but you could nail it down to, to a year. And I love that about Dad. Dad always taught us from a young age that God's word is rooted in historical truth. These are not man-made myths or cleverly, clever tales. This is truth. And John was a prophet. I love it. The word of God came to John. <laughs> it's like the word of God is so powerful. It's like a lion, and it came to him. We often go to the Word of God, but the Word of God also comes in and transforms us. And like all other prophets of the Old Testament, John's authority and power came not from himself, but from God. And Luke 1.15 says he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And now he comes to preach a word from God and in the power of God's Spirit. That means even though we live 2,000 years later, we had better listen to John's message because it's God's message. And there's nothing we need more than a clear message from God for our souls. And John didn't care what he wore. He just wore camel skins and stuff like that. And my dad could care less about what he wore. He, uh, yeah, he just was free that way. And John was bold and fearless like that. He came out of the wilderness. He's a wild man, a bold prophet. As a matter of fact, at the end, we'll see he rebukes Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife and for all the other evil things Herod had done. That takes some serious chutzpah. And dad had that same chutzpah to rebuke people that would dishonor the true king of kings, even if it means it's a king. John received the divine message like the great prophets of old, like Elijah, and he received the word from God, but then he proclaimed that. I love that. Most of us are, are, are mere spectators. We receive it here on a Sunday, and then we go throughout our week as if it doesn't matter. Dad wasn't like that. He received it, and then he proclaimed it. He was constantly proclaiming it. I heard one seminary professor say to me, don't become spiritually constipated. Don't just keep receiving and receiving without giving out. He says, you know, maybe that's not the best analogy, but the point is, <laughs> let it rip. <laughs> the analogy breaks down, but you get the point. Um, and so like John, dad was a herald or a proclaimer of good news. Verse 3 says, he went into the entire region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You see, our fundamental problem is that we are sinners. We are sinners both by nature and by choice. Our problem is sin, and the solution is repentance, turning from your sin to God by faith, and then you can bear fruit. And when the Jews would ask him, who are you, John? He would quote Isaiah 40. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled in, and every mountain and hill made low, and the crooked ways made straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's going on here? You know, in ancient times, if you wanted to travel somewhere, there weren't many good roads. In, the, in Palestine. And so if you came, if you're traveling down a dirt road and there's a big boulder in front of you, well, guess what? You gotta, you gotta go around it or you gotta find another path. And if there was a huge, uh, you know, hole, you had to go down into it and out the other side. It was like on our honeymoon in Costa Rica, the roads are terrible near Volcan Arenal. And I rented the smallest, cheapest car I could. And we'd literally go down into the pothole, like boop, boop and then out back the other end, the car would scrape. 
But the point being, but if you were a king, you know what would happen? Heralds would go before you into the cities and announce that you were coming. And servants would go before you and they would fill in the holes. They would have shovels and 20 servants would fill in the hole to make it smooth. And if there was a boulder, they would attach ropes around it and remove the boulder. Because when a king came through, they went before him and prepared the way for him so that the way would be more smooth. Well, what kind of king is this? That mountains are going to be flattened and valleys are going to be filled in. This is the king of kings. You see, John was the messenger. He was the voice of one calling in the wilderness. But it was prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus, Yeshua, is Yahweh. And he is the king of kings. And for this king, you see, this king doesn't adjust to our roads. He doesn't adjust to our zigzags. We make a straight path for him. He doesn't, he rem, we need to remove all obstacles for this king. And so, um, you see, when this king comes, he doesn't adapt to your roads. Your roads adapt to him. He doesn't adapt to your zigzags. You make straight paths for him. He doesn't go around your boulders. You remove them. But these images are also metaphors with ethical overtones. You see, the proud and arrogant will be humbled, and the humble and lowly will be exalted, and the crooked will be changed. We see this in Acts 2.40 when Peter preached. You see, you remove the rocks in your heart to prepare the way for him. And by God's grace, I pray that we'll remove every obstacle in the way of the... uh, uh, in the way of the entrance of the Lord into our hearts and lives. And you know, Dad's mission was to remove any obstacles of false belief, of evolutionary thought, of idolatry, to prepare the way of the Lord. And I love that about Dad. He, he anticipated people's objections. He studied the French culture and then the Russian and Ukrainian culture to see what, would there, what objections, what obstacles would they have to hearing the gospel. And then he would brilliantly destroy those obstacles and bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Of course, that's God that did that through him, but dad's uh, was brilliant that way. And so how do we, though, prepare our hearts for the king? Well, there's four ways. Two will bring you down into the valley and two will build you up. See, two need to bring us down because we're more sinful than we know. And two will lift us up because we're also more forgiven than we could hope. So the two that bring us down are we need to repent and obey. Thirdly, uh, we need to relax and expect. You're not treating him as a king unless you repent and obey. So the first point is to repent. John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of heart. The axe is laid at the root. Look at verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? See, John was not seeker sensitive. He's harsh with the crowds. He identifies them with the serpent in Genesis 3. And you see, unless you realize that you're a viper, you see, just like we sang, if you don't realize you're a wretched sinner, God's grace won't be that amazing. But once you realize you are a wretched sinner, then his grace is amazing is amazing. And so John is harsh. He identifies them with the serpent in Genesis 3. You brood of vipers, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, John's addressing the crowds that are coming to be baptized by him, religious people and evil people. All sinners need to repent. The religious Jews thought only adulterers and murderers and tax collectors and filthy Gentiles, those out there, they need to repent. John says, no, everyone in the water, you're all a group of wretched sinners. You're all a brood of vipers. See, you have to know the bad news in order to to appreciate the good news. And the bad news is you and I are a brood of vipers. We are sinful and deceptive like the snake in Genesis 3, constantly, constantly relying on our own good works, constantly looking down on others, and constantly questioning God's goodness. Did God really say? And so John Piper gives a really good definition of repentance. He says, repentance is a turning away from any and all reliance upon what I am by birth, like Jew or Gentile, or what I have done by my own effort, and turning to the absolutely free mercy of God for the hope of salvation. Mercy is by its nature, by its nature cannot be constrained or obligated by human efforts But for our comfort and assurance, God has revealed that there is one thing that always receives mercy, and that is reliance on mercy, which is what the New Testament means by faith. Repentance, therefore, is the altering of what we rely on in life and what we hope in, what we are counting on for salvation. And so have you repented? And if you do repent, then there's a lifestyle that follows this repentance. But you must first repent, then you obey. Don't change that order. If you change that order, it's just behavior modification. Many people think, oh, I must obey. Not first. That's not the main thing. First you repent, and then there's fruit that comes from that repentance. And what is that fruit? Well, he goes on. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? That's the crucial question. What shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. So the fruit of repentance is actually seen in the way we use our money and possessions. Give your tunic. You got two tunics? Give it away. You got a lot of food? Share it. So you see... A changed heart is, first of all, a generous heart. God is a generous God, and we're to reflect him by being generous people. Secondly, don't take any extra money from people. The tax collectors used to take an extra percentage for themselves. So be honest in your business dealings. Be generous, be honest, and thirdly, be content. Don't extort money. It's funny, mom and dad were missionaries for over 20 years in the Ukraine, but they never bought a car in the Ukraine. And the reason for that is, If you drove a car in Ukraine, you'd get pulled over for no reason. And they would just say, give us a fine. They would fine you for $50 just to collect money. And so they took uh, mashrutkas all over and and little local taxis because of this corruption that goes on to this day by threats or false accusations. And John here is saying, though, to these soldiers, be content with your wages. See, when a life is changed by Christ, it's seen in the way one uses their money and possessions. Does your life show that? 
Does your portfolio and pocketbook show that? You know, when Zacchaeus, a rich tax collector, received Jesus with joy, his heart was transformed and he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house. See, true repentance leads to restitution. True repentance means you fully rely on God and it makes you open-handed and generous. And all of a Christian's life is a life of repentance. We, we keep turning and returning to our Lord. So repentance starts first with conviction. You feel remorse and guilt over your sin. That's a good thing. If you feel guiltier this morning and it's over your sin, that's good. You see, you realize you're not living in line with the truth of, God, of the gospel, with God's character and his commands. So first, there's conviction. Secondly, there's confe- confession. If you confess with your mouth, uh, sorry, if, you conf- if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. And you talk about your own particular sin that you're struggling with. And third, it's a change of direction. I used to love my sin and I had my back turned towards Jesus and now I love Jesus and I turn my back on sin. And it's, again, it's a life of repentance and beware of counterfeit repentance. Counterfeit repentance looks like this, a fake confession. You say, my bad, I'm sorry, but there's no change in life. You're actually sorry you got caught. You're not really sorry for your sin. Or you might have religious repentance. That's like the the Pharisee in Luke 18, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, exhibit A right here. Don't be preoccupied with other people's sins. Deal with your own sins. We got plenty of our own. (laughs) Thirdly, there's pagan repentance. You repent so that God will bless you. This is like Christian karma. You think you can manipulate God Fourthly, there's general repentance. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. Fifthly, there's excuse making. I sinned because of my genetics. They predispose me towards being an alcoholic because I'm part Irish. So that's why I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm also a quarter Jewish, and that's why I'm frugal. I'm not cheap. I'm frugal. (laughs) So we can justify our sins just because of our bloodline. Or I took a person, personality test and I realized I'm a J-E-R-K. So we need to just quit making excuses. Six, there's blame shifting. We see this right from the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3 when God says, Adam, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree of which I told you not to eat? And he says, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave it to me and I ate. So he blame shifts right away. And Eve's no better. She points to the serpent and and she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so we blame shift instead of owning our sin and repenting of it. And so I pray that we will be people who live a life of repentance and then that that repentance would then lead to obedience. And obedience means you let him be God. You treat him as a king. Remember, God doesn't follow your roads. You adjust your roads for him. He doesn't follow your zigzags. You make straight paths for him. See, we all have crooked roads in our hearts, and we need God to straighten us out. And God's word and his ways can straighten us out and can straighten our culture out, by the way. Our theology shapes our sociology and not the other way around. The Bible is our roadmap, and so we shouldn't capitulate to the culture. He is God, 
We follow him. He doesn't follow our roadmap. If you say, I'll obey you if you're not truly obeying at all. So repent first, obey. Third, relax. John the Baptist says something radical. He says, all must be baptized. When you take a bath, you acknowledge that you stink, that you're polluted, you're unclean. And John says, everybody in the water, you're all unclean. And who comes? Tax collectors, soldiers, Gentiles, Pharisees, Sadducees. Good news, you're all lost. You're all a brood of vipers. Jews and Gentiles alike, you Jews need to repent too. You're just as sinful. Your religious pride is just as much of a sin. Religion can't do a thing to save you. Religion is man's effort to get to God. Religion is love of tradition in the place of love of Jesus. And Christians are just as guilty as Jews. If you obey the religious rules about what you eat and what you wear and where you worship, etc., then you'll feel better than others and look down on others and say things like, we have Abraham as our father. But John warns us, don't say we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God's able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. What an amazing statement. He's pointing to stones in the Judah wilderness and saying, I can take a dead stone and raise it to life. And that's exactly what he did to Abraham and Sarah. Because they, see, the Jews thought, Abraham's our father, we're already saved. And he's like, no. Abraham and Sarah knew it of all people. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was 90 and past menopause. Their child was a total miracle. They should have never had that child. And these stones that John is pointing to in the desert is the same way. He can take something dead like stones and raise it to life. And that's what he does in each of our hearts. He takes our hearts of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. And he continues to, that, to do that miracle generation after generation. See, religious people take themselves very seriously. Real Christians relax. Paul took himself very seriously as a Pharisee. He talks about it in Philippians 3. He says, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and I was zealous, and all these things. And he says, I count that all rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so we don't worry about our religious resume anymore. We love Jesus. And, we, and you know, Dad could care less about his resume. Like, Dad never talked about being a Princeton grad. He was so bright. He could, he could have talked about that. You know, most of dad's classmates, you read about them, in the new, they're millionaires and billionaires. He went back to his 60th reunion. But I feel like we had the richest father in the world because he loved Christ and followed him. Even though he was poor on this world, he is rich beyond rich because he's in the presence of Christ now. And he's heard those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And he has the crown of righteousness. And so, um, you know, Dad was a great man, so was John the Baptist. And yet, you know, Jesus said of John, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet John says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Talk about humility. If John's not worthy, none of us are worthy. Salvation is a gift for the humble. You can only receive it. You can only ask for it. Some of you, some of us need to relax. We take ourselves way too seriously. We take our own religious views way too seriously. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, the yoke of Torah was such a burden on the Jews. I follow all 613 laws in the, in, in the, in the books of Moses. 
And Jesus came and he took, he said, take my yoke upon you instead of that yoke and learn from me from gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest to your souls. Salvation is a gift for the humble. Again, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And John said, you know, at one point his disciples, John's disciples got jealous of him, and they're like, man, they're all going to follow Jesus. And he, he rejoiced, and he said, he must increase, and I must decrease. Oh, for more men like John. So first, we need to repent. Secondly, obey. Thirdly, relax. And finally, expect. God can raise up children from these stones. God took us stones and breathed life into us and raised us up. You know, you're just a stone compared to, you, to what you'll be right in the future. We have five senses right now. Dad has 10,000 senses in the presence of his king. Look at verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in this hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then this line, I love it. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. <laughs> How many of you people, 21st century sensibilities, would call this good news? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. See, this is indeed good news. The bad news that we're filthy sinners deserving hell prepares our hearts for the good news of the grace of Jesus Christ that can forgive our sins. John was a bold man. He literally scares the hell out of the crowd. And dad was that way too. He loved to scare the hell out of people in a good way. But we 21st century snobs don't like this message. We're too politically correct to share it. And then John, such courage, verse 19, he rebuked Herod the Tetrarch for sleeping with Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things Herod had done. So Herod added this to them all, he locked up John in prison. And ultimately, John would be beheaded because Herod, the same Herod was at a party and Herodias' daughter was dancing before him and, and asked for his head on a platter. Total debauchery. John ends up in prison for the sake of Christ. Oh, that we would have more men like John in our day. Men with chess. Men with courageous hearts, as Andy talked about. Men who are quick to repent of their sin, men who obey the king, men willing to go and proclaim this message boldly, men like dad who obey the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May we, his family, carry on that legacy that dad gave us and go and proclaim this and be bold for his sake. Men willing to go to prison, men willing to die in service of their king. Is this king safe? No. Who said anything about safe? But he's good, like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. See, real kings will ask you to do all kinds of things you don't want to do. And so how will you respond? I pray that you and I will resolve to be quicker to repent eager to obey, 
with a glad and generous heart that God would keep unprying our stingy hands and give us glad and generous hearts. Relax, not take ourselves too seriously, be more, laugh at ourselves more. And many of you are like that already. And then expect good things from our good and gracious King. And now we're going to sing a hymn of response, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And when we sing the fourth stanza, I'll ask you to stand with us as we sing. But can you sing with sincerity in your heart? You know, it, it, it concludes the song with love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But in honor of Stephen Olford, who married my mom and dad, can you sing this with sincerity of heart? Love so amazing, so divine, shall have my soul, my life, my all. Mom and dad have no greater joy than to see their children and grandchildren and everyone here walking in the truth. Dad wants all of us in heaven with him, worshiping the Lamb of God, the great King. And let's begin by removing all obstacles in our own hearts and lives. And let's work like Dad to prepare the way from the Lord and remove obstacles in other people as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for, for blessing us with an earthly father who was so much like John the Baptist full of boldness, full of courage, full of joy. A humble man who loved to declare you, Lord, and who removed all kinds of obstacles, cultural obstacles, idolatries, false thoughts, Lord, in order to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Thank you for his example. Thank you for his life. Thank you that we can celebrate him. Thank you that he was a man, a Psalm 1 man who loved to meditate on your word. And I pray that we would all be Psalm 1 men and women here, that we would carry on with his legacy and give us um, just great joy as we do so. Thank you that he's in heaven in your presence where there's fullness of joy and at your right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. Help us to be men and women of courage like John the Baptist, like Dad, like Pepe. And we pray all this in your mighty name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me. Amen. As we stand together, when I survey the wondrous cross of Christ, we'll sing all four verses. <clears throat> when I survey the wondrous cross
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And now everyone is invited to join us um, in the gym for food and fellowship. We'd ask that you'd please allow uh, the family to make their way uh, to the gym first and then you can greet them during this time of fellowship. We can go out these doors here on the left and, um, and now let me just pray for the food so that when we go over there, we can enjoy this time of food and fellowship with you. Thank you, all of you who traveled from near and far to join us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the goodness of God. And we thank you, Lord, that you blessed us with such a wonderful Heavenly Father, Lord, and an imperfect but great earthly Father as well who pointed us in kept repointing us uh, to our Heavenly Father. And we thank you that he's with you and experiencing joys we can only imagine. And yet, Lord, we miss him. But we pray, Lord, for your grace, especially for mom, as she adjusts to life without him. And, uh, and bless each one of us, Lord. I pray that we, his children and grandchildren, would walk in his footsteps and prepare the way for, for the Lord in our own hearts and um, remove all obstacles, Lord, and, uh, and also in others, Lord, the way Pepe did. In Jesus' name, amen.